0: I'm Kira. I'm going to be reading from Exodus 14 and 15 this morning. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Thanks, Kira. Um, Hello friends, I'm Daniel Morgenstern, the student director here and also the small groups coordinator. And though it might not be 100% accurate to call you all friends, I'm, I probably haven't met all of you, um, I like meeting new people, so let's be friends. <laughs> um, so when I found out we were reading through the Pentateuch um, for Immerse this year, one of the first thoughts that came to mind was Passover. Um, you see, uh, this is something that some of you probably don't know about me, but my family is what is called Messianic Jews um, Which what that really means is that we're Jews uh, that believe uh, that uh, Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah promised Um, and Though I I find this like pretty cool like I enjoy my my background and my heritage practically this uh, There's not a huge difference between us and any other um, Christian family All, all Christians have a family heritage or a background And the beauty of the cross is that this thing is for all of us. It's for every tribe and tongue. But the one, like, practical difference, the one thing that really does stand out, um, is that my family has chosen to celebrate some of the ancient traditions of Israel. um, And one of those is Passover. So what that means is that when I hear about Passover, when I read it here, um it has real sensory memories tied to it. I can, I can remember the taste of unleavened bread, I can remember the ritual telling of the story, and I can also remember um, the ritual of remembering the 10 plagues. The way this ritual goes is that um, we are all sitting around the table and we have these cups that we drink throughout the meal, and a full cup is a sign of happiness. And so in mourning for the ten plagues, in mourning for the suffering the Egyptians had to go through, we remove a drop of wine, or grape juice for the kids, um, from our cups so that we have a less full cup. Um, ten drops less full. Um, and, and this is a powerful reminder that of what God did and also um, that Egypt did suffer and that they were people and that we, we don't wish ill upon them. Um, but the thing is, like, t- to fully understand this ritual, you got to understand the context. And the first thing you need to know is the story. Um, you might be right now listening to me and like, what? what is he talking about? Like, what is this Passover? Egyptians? Like, I thought I was tuning into church. Like, what, what's the deal with Egyptians? What are you talking about? Um, so now, many of you read this story this week through a but... For those of you who are just tuning in, or for those of you that need just a quick reminder, uh, the story is that the Israelites, the the people of God, are enslaved in Egypt. Um, They are just powerless to the mighty power of Egypt. Uh, They're held captive, and God sees their suffering, so he calls Moses to go to to the Egyptian god-king, Pharaoh, and demand that Pharaoh let his people go. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but I kind of imagine that Pharaoh is laughing here. He, he obviously says no, because in front of him all he sees is this scraggly herdsman begging on behalf of the like pitiful slave people that don't have a chance against him. Um, and, and the thing is, he's completely right. By every societal metric, Pharaoh is got every advantage. The Egyptians don't have to at all fear the Israelites. Um, they are a world power at this point. They've got maybe a few military competitors, but like culturally and economically, they are the top of the barrel. They're kind of like to put this in perspective. Um, they're like a U.S. and China like wrapped it into one uh, and just really to drive this home, they're this society that is built around this powerful, powerful river, the Nile, that is also consistent. And so they have abundant farming, and because of that abundant farming, they have a huge population. And so they can specialize, they can have scribes and bureaucrats and soldiers and artisans and tradesmen. And meanwhile, up in Europe, people are probably still hunting with like rocks and sticks. And down in, um, in Egypt, they've got a bureaucratic system. Again, it's, it's like Europe is this third world and Egypt is just the top of the barrel. And the, the next thing you need to understand is that the ancient world looked at everything, understood everything through a highly spiritual lens, a supernatural lens. Uh, the sun was a god, the Nile was a god, farming had a god, military success had a god, um, and even like predominant emotions like fear and anger would have gods associated with them. Uh, so Egypt would have seen that their success and their, their power was directly tied to the favor of the gods. They, they wouldn't have seen a distinction um, if there was a good harvest, it wasn't just like, oh, that just happened. It was a god had given them that. Um, and, and furthermore, the same way we, like, respect scientists and listen to what they have to say, they would respect their priests. Um, their priests were their learned men and women who would interpret the signs and tell them um, why it hadn't rained that day or why the empire next door had better pyramids. Everything was seen through this supernatural lens. So when we read in Exodus twelve twelve, on that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt, and I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. That's not just a statement against, like, wooden clay statues. That's not just a statement against, like, just the gods as an idea. It's a statement against everything that the Egyptians understand about their world, how everything functions. And just to be clear, like, what is judgment in this case? Judgment is like a weighing. It's its a, a almost like a pushback, a challenge given to the gods of Egypt. Can they hold up against the Hebrew God? Which is the real God? Which is the real power here? Is it the God of the Israelites, or the many many gods of Egypt, and if God is proven to be in charge, that's a really really big deal to everyone involved. Um, judgment against the God of motherhood for the Egyptians, uh, called Osiris, for instance, uh, would mean that if you were an Egyptian mother, you're you're suddenly like wondering all these questions, like, do you even have supernatural protection? If you're the husband, um, then like, how do you know whether or not uh, you're going to have children, or how do you know like whether or not your child will be a boy or girl? If if you're a a, a, a sibling, then why did your did your baby sister um, come into the world stillborn? Like these are all questions that Osiris and her priests would answer, and if if she is meant to be powerless, then where do you get your answers? How does this work? How is how is your society function? And God he he does. He proves that he is God. Um, as we'll see, the plagues were directly designed to cast doubt and refute the supposed power of the Egyptian gods. In just ten plagues and one miracle, God just completely dismantles everything the Egyptians believed to be solid and secure. But let me tell you, church, there is one final thing you have to understand before you can really understand the ritual of the plagues. One thing that is so crucial to this story that when I like realized it, it, it felt like a slap in the face that I hadn't gotten it sooner. As a child, I missed this huge part of the point of that ritual. I got so focused on what God was teaching the Egyptians, I forgot that God was also teaching the Israelites, and through them, me. You see, Israel had been in Egypt a long time, 430 years to be exact. And other than Joseph, who dies literally in the first page of Exodus, the only Israelites that we hear of that fear God are are some Jewish midwives. So, let me put forward a theory here. I think the Hebrews forgot about God. Not literally. uh, It wasn't like the memories of their ancestors just stopped being told. But I think it stopped being real to them the same way that anything that is just a story to us stops being real to us. I mean, in front of them, they have this superpower, this... This people that has power and wealth and influence and they're just so clearly blessed I mean wouldn't you start wondering maybe they're on to something here maybe I should be worshipping Khnum the god of the Nile or maybe I should be looking into this Ra uh, the god of the Sun I mean that's how we work right that's how people work we're drawn to success and like that shiny object syndrome. This is, seems to be good, and so I'm going to look at it. Now, hear me out. I, I don't know this for certain. Exodus doesn't directly tell us this, but I think there are some clues that we can see in the narrative. First among these is that before God talks about casting judgment on the gods of Egypt, like the verse we talked about earlier, um, we read in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, Therefore, I say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression, and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. His first stated reason for the plagues is to talk to Israel not to Egypt. He doesn't talk about judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians until the plagues are already starting. And that verse I read earlier about judgment against the gods of Egypt um, doesn't happen until nine of the the plagues have already happened. It's at the end. And then furthermore, in Exodus 3-6, when Moses finds the burning bush, God introduces himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Not your God. Not even just God. The God of your fathers. A better interpretation is the God of your forefathers. And then Moses responds in Exodus 3-13, through but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? They don't know the name of God. God's given a name to Abraham. They should know this. Like, God has a name at this point. And yet, they've forgotten it. They don't know. The God that made them a distinct and special people is a stranger to them. The plagues are about teaching Egypt, but that's a side benefit. The main lesson is for Israel. They need to see who really is packing the big guns. Who is the real superpower here? The so obviously powerful gods of Egypt who are in front of them, or the God from the the bedtime stories of their grandparents? And if we think about it, and we put ourselves in their shoes, who would we choose? Who would we bet on? And, and God, he shows those initial bets to be completely off. Let's go through it. The first thing God tackles is the center of any society. It's pocketbook. God knows how important money is to us. There are 2,000 verses in the Bible that pertain to money. For the Egyptians, this means, m- wealth means two things farming and trade. And God hits both in the face with the first plague, turning the Nile into blood. You see, without the Nile feeding their crops and being an easy access, an easy highway to the in- interior of Africa. Two pieces of the Egyptian economy, the two cornerstones. Actually, what most Egyptians would have worked as is just gone. Um, it leaves the Egyptians and actually also the Israelites without a really good way to put food on the table. And um, and just to put this kind of in perspective, uh, or excuse me, just and to think about this, this is just the first plague. Through the plagues of livestock. Hail and locusts, God also destroys whatever crops already have grown, and then he also destroys the the animals that would have been kind of the fallback food source. We don't know this for certain, but it's it's pretty logically clear that there's a famine now happening in Egypt. And again, to put this in perspective for us today, it it would be like if a, a ghost or something destroyed Wall Street, and then like every company connected to it also just went down. Like There are some people in our society that would maybe be okay, but the vast majority of us would just be out of a job, out of luck. Like, what do we do? Like, what happened to Wall Street? The Nile turned into what? If the Israelites were at all impressed with the wealth of Egypt, they aren't anymore. Next, God attacks the Egyptian culture. The plagues of frogs, lice, boils, and darkness are all frustrating and uncomfortable. And I kind of thought about it in the past. Like, thats it. they seem kind of weird in, in place of some of the other plagues that like seem to kill things. Like, yeah, lice is kind of annoying, but how does that fit in? Um, and the thing is, it doesn't, if it's just about how it feels. But it—it it is important for the symbology for what it means to the egyptians you see lice and boils attacked the special place of the priests anyone with either of these maladies wasn't allowed into egyptian temples they were ritually unclean frogs were considered the avatar of the god heket which is their like irrigation and fertility god so they had this great respect for him and they didn't want to hurt them But now the frogs are everywhere. They're like in their houses, in their cooking pots. Like how could they possibly avoid stepping on them or maybe even roasting them? And then the final and most important thing is the darkness is a direct challenge to Ra, the sun god, who is like the king of the gods. He's their Zeus. And God's throwing down the gauntlet and saying, it's dark, where's Ra? To again, put this into perspective for us, it's like if bugs got into like the robes of Harvard graduates or the scrubs of doctors so they can't wear them, or um, if just thousands of bald eagles suddenly just took up residence in our houses, or if the Statue of Liberty just collapsed. Are these things gonna like end your society? No, like, we'd still move on, we'd go through it, but would we be completely worried and unsettled and just generally like, what is going on? Yeah, of course we would. And that's how the Egyptians are going through this. Through the ten plagues, God upstages the Egyptian gods Happy, Newt, Neith, Hathor, Horus, Set, Isis, Osiris, Dnieper, Anubis, Ra, and 15 others. The Hebrew god defeating just one of their gods would have been kind of worrisome. But the fact that all of them together can't seem to stop him that would have been shattering. Like, what is happening here? If the Israelites had at all started to like grasp onto or associate with some of the symbols of Egypt, they're not anymore. And finally, God lays low the Egyptian power through the plagues of the livestock, the death of the firstborn, and the miracle at the Red Sea. The Egyptians like any other country, influenced people with their culture and wealth first, and then if that didn't work, then they'd send in the army. And because of their immense wealth, they could put out a big army. They could get a lot of guys in the field. But it wasn't just their numbers that was impressive. They also were the top of military tech at the time. In Exodus 14:7, we read that Pharaoh took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The chariot at the time is like the battle tank, the fighter jet, the unmanned drone of this day and age. It combines the cutting edge of transportation technology and weapons tech. And it's this deadly system that anyone standing against would have been terrified and really kind of almost unable to deal with. A handful of these, like even small numbers, like maybe a couple hundred, um, could absolutely change a battle. And at this time and in this age, one lost battle could end your nation. Like, you're just done. So 600 chariots is no small thing. Like, think of 600 fighter jets in front of you. That's not something that you want to deal with. But these things are both attacked by these plagues. Um, They're they're pulled, these chariots are pulled by the best horses. And they're crewed by the cream of the Egyptian nobility, the, the sons of the elite. And so when the death of the livestock comes through, their horses are dying. And when the death of the firstborn comes through, the riders are dying. And furthermore, the pharaoh's son, the the next commander in chief the, the the future of egypt also dies this great and powerful army can't even protect its horses let alone its future the country's future now at this point pharaoh flinches he can't take it the pressure anymore he finally lets the israelites leave um, and they end up bringing a crowd of egyptians with them because the power of god is Pretty darn convincing but sadly at the first sign of trouble all those previous demonstrations of god's power aren't enough for the israelites when pharaoh and his army comes after the israelites they cry out to moses in exodus 14 11 through 12 and they said to moses why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness weren't there enough graves for us in egypt what have you done to us why didn't you why didn't you leave us in egypt Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's it's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Doesn't that just sound like whiny? Even after seeing everything God did, they're still not getting it. They have physically walked out of Egypt. But the fear of that society, the fear of their gods, and the forces they represent is still in their hearts and in their minds. They're carrying Egypt with them. And it's kind of easy for us to chuckle at this, right? Like, I mean, look at what God's already done, right? He's not going to be intimidated by a few battle tanks. But we need to ask ourselves, are we much better? How many times has God liberated us from the opinions of others? The fear of the future financial instability, and false identities that leave us alone and lonely? How many times has he powerfully laid claim to us, and yet our minds and our hearts remain a slave in Egypt? We get caught up and we fear all the gods of the U.S., China, the economy, politics, social norms, and even inconsequential things like hobbies and the next new gizmo. But God is gracious. He's willing to remind us yet again. We read in Exodus fourteen, thirteen through fourteen that, uh, that Moses responds to the Israelites. But Moses told the people don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch. The Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And God, in his power, splits the sea. The Israelites walk across dry ground. And once they are safely across, God smashes those fighter jets. The Egyptians and their pharaoh don't even get close. This is how the Lord God reintroduces himself. That is the power that God wields on our behalf. He will fight for you. And Israel, they see this and they respond. They sing praises to God and for the first time, they don't call God just the God of their ancestors but my God. Friends, that's how we walk out of Egypt, with praises. God will do great works on your behalf, and all he asks in return is that you claim him as he claims you. He's not just the God of the Israelites or the God of your parents, but my God. I want you to claim that over yourself right now. Say it with me. My God. Come on. I, I can tell that some of you aren't saying it, even from here. There is power in declaring things. Say it with me. My God. My God. My God. Now at this time, the band is up here. They're, they're starting to play, and I want us to reflect on what God what the gods, what, what different gods have we allowed into our minds and our hearts? Are we allowing ourselves to fear things that have no no size, no power in comparison to our God, to my God? I want you to ask yourself, am I still in Egypt? God does not call you to physically leave or separate yourself from your Egypt, but he does ask you to trust him. You may have fallen into terror. The world's power may seem to be rising in front of you like an army. But remember, he will fight for you. Let this upcoming time of worship be to you what it was to the Israelites. Claim him as he claims you. He's reaching out to you. Just take his hand. Declare that he is your God and that those other gods have no power here.